Hello and welcome to the Demographicast. This week I'm joined once again by Jack Street after his absence last week um, <laughs> and joined by Riley Hall as well this week. How are you both? Good, thanks, mate. Good, thank you. Yeah. How you doing, Brett? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, I, I said I last. Just... Sorry, go on. No, no. I, what, I mean, t- 20 seconds in, I'm already interrupting you. Um, <laughs> I said, said uh, before we started, I haven't done one in two weeks. And it feels like ages since I, uh, since I was on one, so. Yeah, it was strange doing one without you last week, but but it's good. I missed I missed you too, mate. (laughs) 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 So uh, so Riley is a um, a student in uh, international history and politics um, in the northeast. You said, Um, what made you want to go into that originally? You always been interested in politics. Well, um, not always, you know, I didn't just pop out the womb, um, <laughs> going, you know, oh, Jeremy Corbyn kind of thing, you know, I was, uh, <laughs> I kind of, <laughs> I became very interested in politics, sort of around the time of the 2017 general election, um, as I think a lot of people of, of our generation did, because, yeah. um, because for the first time I was kind of, I was seeing something very different, you know, a kind of anti-establishment um, challenge to the to the rhetoric, and so I, I became very interested in that. And um, I've always been interested in history, um, so I just thought, you know, seems like a, a good duo. Yeah, uh, the majority of the people we have on, if we ask them when they first go into politics, they say either the twenty sixteen referendum or twenty seventeen election. Um, it's interesting, yeah, isn't it? It like, is for all the the criticism that that Corbyn gets, and you know, there's there's a lot to be criticised. I think that there is something to be said for how that movement at the time, be it Corbyn or Momentum or the Labour Party of that era, sparked an interest in young people um, and, and got them involved in politics. Um, I, I do think yeah, there's something yeah, to definitely. be said. They're probably in a way that, that a lot of political parties have failed to do for probably 30 years. Yeah, for sure. definitely. Um, so today uh, I asked Riley if uh, there was anything in particular that you wanted to talk about and uh, you said uh, sort of populism in Europe that you've got a particular interest in it. Um, yeah. I wanted to sort of just start by giving a bit of a, a definition, I suppose, of populism. It was a quick Google search, and uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, so the, the definition of the term is a political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people who feel that their concerns are disregarded by established elite groups. Um, I found an article by the BBC that was talking about populism in Europe. Um, I think it was from 2019, so it probably needs to be of an update, um, especially given, I think, there's been a slight rise in populism, or at least in support for it, over the last year. Um, uh, the article in the BBC said uh, that obviously that governments like Hungary and Poland have sort of uh, eroded the rule of law and sort of fundamental human rights. I think the examples of that are in Poland. The, um, the fact that the abortion, the anti-abortion law came in recently, that meant that people, yeah. that women can't get abortions there. And in Hungary, they've been uh, curtailing sort of LGBT rights, I think, for a while. Um, according to this article, I was surprised. It says, uh, according to the article, it said 68% of Hungarian voters voted for a populist party in the last election. But they've got wow. two populist parties, so I think yeah, both fairly right. right wing. And the but this is where. This is why I kind of wanted to jump in, though, Brett, because I think it's okay. important to, to... This is a really complex topic, right? And yeah, it's sure. important to, to uh, make the distinction or, or have the understanding that populism in itself isn't an ideology. It's a way yeah. of doing politics. Doesn't mean I right would wing. argue... Doesn't mean left-wing. No, exactly. I would argue that those 
um, that that specifically the Law and Order Party in in Poland is, or Law and Justice, sorry, Party in Poland is uh, a, a, a a borderline. Um, well, I would say that they're a, a regressive far right party. I would not. I would say that they do politics in a populist way. Um, but I would say that the, the underpinning ideology is is uh, borderline authoritarian sure. um, and and far far oh, yeah. right wing. Um, that's how I would I would sort of describe that ideology, and that's where the difficulty comes in in like pinpointing what populism is, because Bernie Sanders is a populist, yeah. right? So then it's difficult yeah. then to, to to talk about that party in Poland and the, the sure. policies that that are brought in and sort of. Uh, something that Bernie Sanders would say that you know somebody on the populist left. Um, so I think it's important to to make that uh, clarification, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I was going to end up sort of asking questions like, um, <laughs> what? It, obviously, can populism be a good thing? Because I think we would probably argue that it can. Uh, it, just to point out though, because I thought this article was interesting, that I think it covered mostly European Union countries. Mm-hmm. Um, Although it left out some of the Baltic states for some reason, I'm not entirely sure why. Um, but it's but I thought it was interesting to see that over twenty percent of voters in Austria, Switzerland, Denmark, and Belgium voted for populist um, parties, and then over ten percent, so that ranges from ten percent to nineteen percent of of voters in Estonia, Finland, Sweden, Italy, Spain, France, the Netherlands, Germany, and the Czech Republic all voted for populist parties in in their last elections, and then obviously we've kind of witnessed populism um taking hold of the sort of the the winning parties narrative here in the uk as well over the last uh, yeah. few years but specifically in the last election and in the referendum as well um well first of all riley i wanted to just sort of ask you given that you're so interested in the topic why you think people in europe specifically have been so attracted to populism in the last couple of or in the last decade or two well, I think it kind of stems from two things, and you know, you, it's it's important not to to oversimplify yeah. um, because you know people are weird and complex. Um, but um, <laughs> to put it academically, but they essentially, I think, it boils down to a number of things. The biggest one being economics. I think since two thousand and eight, I mean, there's been a, a massive increase in populism, and to to kind of to argue that that wasn't a factor, I think, is a, is a is a little bit naive because, you know, what what people saw across across Europe and to an extent in in America and in some, and some other countries as well, some developing countries, was that governments, whether they were centre left or centre right or you know smack bang in the centre, when they responded to the crisis, the vast majority of them implemented austerity policies. Um, and so people were kind of looking at the situation like, hang on, you know, th- these these bankers did this and now we're paying for it and they're getting off scot-free. Um, and I think that's kind of a, a primary motivation for it. And when you look at the rise of populism in any period, whether it's, you know, in the 30s or, you know, when the term was kind of where it originates in ancient Greece, it always comes from a period of decline um, when people are kind of, wanting a, a major change because they just feel like the establishment's listening. And I think that's the primary reason. And then of course, you know, how that populism manifests is, is a different matter. It can be, obviously it can be left-wing targeting, you know, very, very rich people and redistribution of wealth and things, or it can be, you know, right-wing with targeting minorities and immigrants and so on. Mm-hmm. 
deck of your yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, yeah, I would agree. I, I think that that sort of disenfranchisement from the traditional way of doing politics is probably the the predominant factor as to why individuals seek an alternative. I think that uh, it's in in many ways, I think on on a base level, and you know, this is why again, I think it's important to make a distinction between what people say and, and what they do. You know, I think Nigel Farage managed to tap into. Um, people who were rightly disenfranchised from the, the political system, people who didn't see them and their views being represented in Westminster and tapped into that for, for what I would argue would be sinister means and means that really didn't represent the views of, of those people. Um, so I think it comes from, or the want for, for a difference, the want for populism, if you will, comes from um, an important place, and a place that I think the Labour Party at the moment would be... Um, well well suited to, to tapping into i think that you have to look at the reasons for why people voted for brexit for why boris johnson won for why people voted for donald trump and say that the systems that we have aren't working for a lot of ordinary people we need to change that the problem comes when you look at politics and you look at people's motivations and uh, that is seen as a tool to get into power and then what people do in power is very different from what they said they were going to do when they were being elected or the people that they represent really aren't though the you know the the working person it's it's the elites it's business as usual and i think that that's best um shown in donald trump i think you know the whole drain the swamp movement the uh america first rhetoric yeah, yeah. Uh, was great for for getting him into power but when he was in power he he governed like a neoconservative establishment um business as usual politician you know there was really you know nothing that he did that, that, that was aimed at those those people um so I think it comes from, you know, I think it's important to realise that the populism comes from a place that's important, but um, often it's 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 more crucial to look at politicians' actions rather than their their rhetoric and their words. Do either of you know of any examples of uh, people who have used quite populist um, narratives in their election campaigns or whatever, and have then followed up with those uh, with sim with um, not regressive. Uh, policies i suppose or I not used it for good, their own means a good example would, would maybe be um the new deal fdr i think that, that would probably be a good example um you know a, a politician who who said you know that this is what america needed that this is this is what mm. um a new sort of industrial deal um a kind of massive amount of investment and growth was needed um and they'll follow through on that after after they were elected and you know it's again it's a difficult one to answer because i guess some people would suggest that maybe donald trump he tried to build the wall um you know like it's it's, it's that the kind of you know it depends what your standards are for that kind of thing right it's you know boris johnson i, I guess delivered some kind of brexit um sure you know so what are your mm. you know yeah how high are your standards but um, I would say that, yeah, FDR is a good, a good example of that. I think there are probably Norwegian countries that probably don't fall into, or Scandinavian countries, sorry, that don't fall into necessarily the pop populist, like the traditional populist way of doing things, but uh, their way of doing politics is far more promising and then delivering. Um, so, yeah, there are definitely examples. There are definitely examples of that. I don't know if you've got anything that's clearer, Riley. <laughs> um. You know, that's to be honest that was the only thing i could think of because it is actually very hard isn't it to think of a populist movement that's resulted in the change they were actually talking about mm -hmm. i think 
The only other one I can think of is Theodore Roosevelt. Um, you know, he was when he obviously he he kind of inherited the presidency as the vice president when um, William McKinley was assassinated. But when he ran in his first second term, he was kind of railing against the elites and uh, the monopolies, and obviously he was a big trust buster and everything. So I'd say him to to an extent, but he was he was more of a populist when he ran um, for the Progressive Party for the Bull Moose Party, and then obviously he didn't win. So. Mm. Why do we? I would think... say that that's an issue with all political parties. Though I wouldn't say that it was it was sort of like a populist issue, right? I would say that that you would struggle to find many political parties that deliver everything that they set out in their manifesto. I think that, sure. or even a a, yeah. a a large proportion of that. Why do we think that they seem to be so? That the majority, at least in Europe, seem to be right wing. Um, though the ones that adopt these populist, um, yeah, narratives. Any ideas? Any theories? That's a good question. Don't that one, uh, I mean, <laughs> the uh, to be honest, I think um, it comes. I think from a place of, I suppose the, the 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 current power structures that are in place. If you think about, you know, the kind of political and um, economic and media kind of establishment, as it were, um, they stand to lose a lot from a left wing populist movement. Because the left-wing populist movement generally, you know, as we saw in 2017 with Jeremy Corbyn and, and 2019, um, and 2016, 2020 with Bernie Sanders and, you know, Podemos in Spain and the list goes on, they actually will redistribute wealth and power away from, you know, this tiny group of very, very wealthy individuals to the majority of the population. And whether or not you agree with their policies, that does represent a threat to those people's influence. And so when anger is being directed somewhere, I think it's more likely that the political and media atmosphere will be less hostile towards right-wing populists because they'll essentially, they don't really fundamentally challenge that. I mean, look at Trump. Did he fundamentally challenge the status quo of the United States? You know, arguably not until he went crazy and decided to try and overthrow the election. So... You know, I think that that's kind of the the main reasoning for it. I think that basically those views are more viewed as more legitimate, vilifying you know immigrants and feminists and communists and you know whatever else. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree, and um, I think that, that generally the right are better at delivering those messages than the left are, um, particularly in sort of when when looking at, at political parties and maybe less so individuals. But um, I, I think that the the right have, have been better at, at sort of attacking um, the left, woke people, whatever that means, you know, sort of soaking this this idea of a culture war. Um, I think that, that unless you're looking at Bernie Sanders, who I think is probably the best example in the West of uh, kind of anti-establishment politician, um, a true anti-establishment sort of populist left politician, um, it's far easier to create that rhetoric. I mean, I was the other day ch- chatting to my my mum, and we were sort of having like having a meeting, and I was pretending, you know, to play that side, right, and just sort of like winding my mum up. And it's incredibly easy, and it's also very fun, um, you know. It, so I, I can see why people are attracted into into playing that that side. Um, you know, there's a lot of clout in it, especially these days. Um, what was your question, Brett? Uh... 
What was my question? Oh, uh, well, it was, did it was, the, was, the majority uh, of right wing. Why did the majority yeah, of right wing? Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> because, I, like, like Riley, like Riley pointed out, I think that the the, the sort of um, particularly the media establishment, uh, especially in this country, controls that that narrative mm. um, from that side. So it's it, you're you're going to get a platform far easier um, if you decide to to turn aside. You just have to look at the Meghan and Harry. Um, sort of debate that's that's yeah, raging which we'll through, you know later. you can yeah you can you can be somebody that just calls themselves a royal expert or a royal correspondent as long as you you toe the right line um you, you and there's examples of, of young people we think it's great that, that young people are getting a platform but you know when you look at individuals like tom harwood or darren grimes who essentially have been given a platform to espouse um the, the tory party line uh, and, and not really seemingly come up with any individual thoughts. You know, they 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 take a line. Everybody knows they're going to take that line. They get clout for it. They're pretty happy. You know, sort of just towing that line. They have to apologise every now and then when they platform a racist. But they 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 get given that. They get given that platform. They get funded. Um, and you know, there's it's 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 fairly easy to do that. It's far more difficult to speak truth to power. Mm. And there's far less in it, and it's a far longer road. So I think that's probably why. Um, and it's it's electorally it's a great tactic it's a great tactic um, yeah. you know let's not forget when looking at the the trump biden election that without covid biden probably would have lost in a in a landslide um you know he, trump was able to oversee uh, a, a sort of civil unrest and one of the probably the worst response to the pandemic in the world and still get the second most votes of votes second most votes of any president in history mm. um that's pretty damning and i think it, it's a, a good message to right-wing populists around the world yeah which is why it's confusing because i think you know we'd I'd, we'd argue or i mean i'd argue that you know trump didn't or it was the elite himself you know he didn't he played into that uh that narrative when he was campaigning that that he would you know drain the swamp and get rid of all these uh these people yeah. in, in power that weren't fighting for the american people or that weren't um doing anything that would benefit them and then go into power and i mean i think it was pretty obvious that he was going to get into power and not you know do anything to really yeah. help the the poor and working class people of america but um i'm intrigued to know if populism works, but I, it's, I think it's it's only you know theory because we can't we don't really have an example of it. But I would be interested to know. To me, it would have been really interesting to see Bernie Sanders up against Trump because it would have been left wing populism against right wing populism. And yeah. um, I mean, you could probably argue, I guess, that the reason that Bernie Sanders wasn't selected as the candidate was maybe was because he was challenging this elite and even the Democrat tick party of in america i think likes the way it is i don't think it wants the dmc to... primaries both times were, were rigged so you know it's it's i mean that's important to bear in mind and it's it, it's yeah. it's sort of academic right we'll never we'll never know we can look at polling however much you trust polling um and throughout the the both the primary polling and pre-primary election polling by all accounts sanders was projected to smash trump mm -hmm. um and that was even pre-pandemic, you know. So, um, yeah. would have been amazing to see. Would have been amazing to see. Um, sure. Riley, what do you think about about sort of the electoral uh, chances of, of left-wing parties 
without adopting that approach. Without adopting yeah, yeah. that approach. Um, I think they're, they're very, very slim. I, th I think it's, uh, it paints a very grim picture. I think, unfortunately, we are, we're not living in an age where people generally think things are going to get better. You know, most people like things are going to either stay bad or they're going to get worse. Right. Um, and with, that's with regards to employment, climate change, you know, even things like fake news or automation, everything just feels like it's getting worse. Basically, I think for a lot of people, they feel left behind. And if the, the left kind of tries to be very technocratic about their solutions, they will, I think they'll, they'll fail. Um, you know, like you said, Joe Biden, I mean, was, was giving some, some very, very, limited policies the most radical thing he was talking about was you know like a 15 dollars minimum wage um which you know if you were just for inflation and worker productivity changes since the 60s that would be 24 dollars an hour in america mm. so you know they even failed to pass that 15 dollars minimum wage recently um, yeah as well, so, so so clearly and and he and he would have i think we all agree he probably would have lost if it hadn't been for the pandemic i, I um, believe so yeah and because he, he was just a slightly more likable Hillary Clinton, and I'm not sure that was enough. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, it, it, the, the left doesn't really stand much much of a chance in doing that because people want a challenge. People feel totally disenfranchised. And if you say, well, actually, that's divisive, and we need to be nice and civil, and, you know, <laughs> and people are just going to be like, well, sod you, because I don't, I, don't, yeah. I don't think these people are representing me. And if you're saying, well, actually, it's not that bad, then I won't vote for you. So I think that's kind of, I think it's a big risk. And, that's, and I think that's a risk that the Labour Party is taking um, yeah. right now. That's going to be my next question. Sort of what do you think of, of the strategy that the Labour Party is, is adopting? Like, what kind of what do you think about Keir Starmer in general? I'm sort of interested to, to know. Well, um, it, was, it was interesting, actually, because... Um, I was I, I I supported the Labour Party in 2017 2019. Um, you know, I think are you a Corbyn, member? I I am a member, yeah. Um, kind of a bit, a bit sort of reluctantly at the moment, but you know, I, club, I, <laughs> <laughs> I I was, I think that's how pretty much everyone feels. But um, yeah, I I knew that there were problems with Jeremy Corbyn, and I knew that he'd done things wrong, and I knew that Labour's kind of optics were often a bit a bit a bit dodgy and they basically didn't you know they didn't kind of um act in a way that presented themselves in the best light and gave their policies across in kind of a very slick way i thought keir starmer was essentially going to have a slightly more moderate version of the politics of like the 2017 manifesto with the uh the kind of the charisma and electability of tony blair and it was kind of the way around and the electability of jeremy corbyn and i, I feel yeah. a bit lied to um <laughs> i didn't he wasn't my first choice actually my first choice was lisa nandy um and to be honest i i didn't really like any of them yeah. <laughs> but um so i think labor's strategy um I, what I thought it was going to be was kind of an actually an anti-establishment strategy that was more effective, more polished and, and more streamlined. Mm. But what they're doing instead, I think is a very technocratic, moderate, um, just totally bland approach. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think Starmer's first, Starmer's first sort of like year 
on the job um, really hasn't been very promising. But there was, you know, there was a period of 2020 where, you know, Labour were gaining a lot in the polls. People were saying, oh, you know, this guy, I could maybe vote for him. But after that point, I think people started to see the cracks showing as the, the policies just never came. You know, there was nothing substantive ever. You know, I mean, the most substantive thing we've got has been like votes at 16 and a recovery bond. Yeah. You know, so I think I think it's kind of a recipe for disaster, to be honest. Yeah, not exactly sexy policies. I mean, verse no. 16, 17 is interesting, but yeah, they don't get me going. And I think that would be your criticism, right, Brett? Yeah. Bland, I think, is a good way of describing it. Definitely bland. And like, if we're talking about populism and how it just, it kind of baffles me that the Labour Party isn't going down that route because the um the atmosphere that I get at the moment in the UK generally, but especially with more left-wingers, is that they don't trust the media, they don't trust the people in power, the elite are, are you know, people that they can't, that are, you know, we've, we've spoken so many times about the one rule for them and a different for, for us, so it's, that kind of thing seems to be happening constantly, especially recently, like with the, the royal family stuff. It baffles me that you wouldn't, as a left-wing party, try and go down that route, because I feel like that it's pretty obvious that people want to push back against this elite, and yeah. and with all these inequalities coming out during the 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 last year, being you know have it being laid bare in front of us, just baffling to me that that, that they wouldn't try and cash in on that, even yeah, from yeah. a political standpoint, I, not necessarily a moral one, but. Yeah, like, look, yeah look and it's at, not even just about the... Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, look back at, back to, to 2017, probably the last... I mean, I, you can't really call losing successful, but sort of semi-triumph was probably the 2017 general election, where that was the route that was taken. You know, I mean, 2019 obviously was far more uh, Brexit-heavy, um, but really felt like ground was being made up, you know, and obviously there were catalogue catalog of errors and, and poor leadership from Jeremy Corbyn and the cabinet and the sort of upper echelons of the Labour Party between that time. But that strategy, highlighting the weaknesses of, of government, showing how incompetent and inept they are and how corrupt they are, never was there, is, will there be a better time to highlight that stuff than now? Um, and never has probably the mood of the nation kind of directed in that way. Um, yeah. And we've, I think, already missed the boat as a party because as soon as we the vaccine um, is fully rolled out, as soon as people are getting pints down their neck in Weatherspoons again, it'll probably all be forgotten. You know, we have very, very short memories in this country, and we didn't get on the um, train, you know, early enough, anywhere near early enough, um, and it's probably too late now. And, and I've said throughout the pandemic, if there's an inquiry. And the Labour Party start ch like chiming in and saying, you know, uh, awful leadership. I will, I will sit here and say, you could have fucking spoken up when people were dying. You know, you could have yeah. raised your voice when when people couldn't say goodbye to their loved ones and they were in hospital. You know, you could have fought a bit harder throughout this this period and not just, um, you know, started speaking up when it was easy. And I, I, I agree. I think that it's it's a problem that many of us can see, which really is why it boggles me. Uh, and I think probably you two as well, that they haven't also noticed it. Um, yeah. You know, two two policies, two policy announcements for a, for a new leadership, a new Labour Party leadership in a national crisis. Not one, but two, you know, the pandemic and the um, the recession is, is not good enough. 
um, um, yeah, why not go down that that road? There's enough things to 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 complain about, right? There's enough things to to yeah. you know, yeah. pin your colours to and say that we don't we don't like this, we don't agree with this. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's strange. Yeah, for sure. Uh, any final thoughts on on that tool, or shall I move on to current events? I just can I just say one thing. I th- I okay. think something that is really lacking in the Labour Party right now is um, a desire to shift the Overton window. They certainly not to the left. Um, you know, they they seem to uh, to not understand that. You know, when Jeremy Corbyn was elected leader of the Labour Party in 2015, I remember me and my dad talking about it, obviously. I, I was only 13, I didn't really know anything about politics, but I was just, he, we were just, you know, chatting about it. And he was like, yeah, it's a shame because like, it would be nice, wouldn't it? But you know, not, someone like that's never gonna come close to power. And I was like, yeah, it's a shame, yeah, blah, blah. You know, and then when 2017 rolled around, we were like, well, Labour are gonna get smashed. And then back to centrist Labour Party, right? Yeah. But because of that kind of momentous uh, populist, leftism being actually what most of the public agreed with on a policy by policy basis and it coming together in an effective vision while the conservatives were running a horrendously bad very right-wing campaign the 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 ground was shifted things changed in a big big way and now the labor party doesn't seem to understand that you know that was because of them they did that and if they keep doing that they could push the government towards better things i mean even if they don't win you know the conservatives are implementing more Keynesian economic policy. And I would argue the biggest influence on that is the Labour Party. They knew they'd shifted the Overton window. So I, yeah. Yeah, I think Labour really missing an opportunity there. Um, and they're almost kind of, by being so tepid, they're almost kind of allowing it to shift further right, which is just mm. bonkers. But... Yeah, yeah. Like flanking, flanking the Tories on the right with the, the corporation tax rises. You know, it's like yeah. the basis of that policy or that decision was that the Labour Party would be in favour of raising um, corporation tax when the pandemic ended. But if you can't see how easily that is spun, I mean, you're paying people top money to be aware of this stuff and come up with responses. And I can sit here in my bedroom and tell you if I was a Tory party member or if I was Boris Johnson, I'm, I'm going to be saying, um, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be aware that the Labour Party uh, membership aren't going to be happy with that. Um, you know, I, I would question why those people were in those those positions. To be perfectly honest with you, um, yeah. but yeah, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think you're totally right, Riley. Let's move on to our first uh, current event topic um, of today, which is a pretty big topic at the moment. Um, <laughs> couldn't really avoid talking about it. <laughs> you know what? Before you move on, right? I've got a, a, a group chat <laughs> with friends um, from from school and. One of my, my friends was watching the interview yes, uh, yeah, last night um, and put in the chat and said, is any, anybody watching Harry and Meghan, um, you know, take the royal family to task? And one of my friends genuinely went, no, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> and I was okay. like, Are you li- do you live under a rock? How can you not be aware of, of this, you know? <laughs> well, this is why we should talk about it then. For yeah, people who... Exactly, who... Yeah. Not, We're um, really drilling into the uh, the news stories <laughs> that have gone under the radar. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, <laughs> raising awareness. <laughs> yeah. So, as a quick recap, um, as of today, so it's Tuesday the ninth. Um, 
the Harry and Meghan interview with Oprah Winfrey aired last night on on British uh, television, though I think a lot of us knew what it was going to contain already from it being released in America the day before. Um, They talk about their experiences with the royal family throughout their relationship. Um, And uh, interesting, because I don't know if if Harry at all talks about before Meghan joined the tool or when she was in the picture. And I'd be interested to know if he's got any other insight about the royal family from before she was part of his life um but anyway they uh basically dropped a, a bomb people are describing it as them dropping bombshells on on the royal family because uh they bring up things like megan's um suicidal thoughts that she was having during her pregnancy with um archie because uh of the pressure being within the royal family and and the fact that she received no support after asking senior members as well as the institution for help um her, the response I think she was given was something along the lines of we've all had to deal with it so can you yeah um, they bring up the fact that there were discussions amongst royal family members I think one in particular talked about how uh, that raised the question about what how dark Archie's skin would be when he was born which is yeah. baffling um, and other things like Prince Charles, I think, uh, apparently has stopped speaking to Harry for a time, at least after they they left the UK. <laughs> um, they did say stuff like the their relationships with the I think Harry's relationship with the Queen seems to be stronger than ever, apparently, from what they, he was saying, especially with his two grandparents, I think. Um, and it, he did confirm that neither the Queen nor Prince Philip made the comments about Archie's skin color. Because I think a lot of people might have jumped to the conclusion that it was Prince Philip, um, given his, yeah. given his uh, his background. Um, <laughs> so where where do both of you stand on this topic? Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, like I think it for me, under uh, it just it, it it reaffirms my kind of. I don't even know what the right word is. Not even frustration, but just kind of um, apathy with the royal family. Um, you know, have never been a fan, have never really understood being a fan of a family because they're the head of state or because they were born. You know, you come out of the right vagina and all of a sudden you've got 75% of the country um, praising you no matter what you do. You know, I think that, that they are an out-of-date institution that is in desperate need of reform. Um, and I kind of said, like, I, West Ham were playing last night, so I didn't watch the, um, <laughs> the, the interview last night. Um, but I, I kind of said, and assumed, and I think rightly after watching it, um, that it was calm, honest, interesting. There were obviously bits that were pretty horrific, pretty shocking. But I think it's amazing that they've come out and, and spoken out about sort of their position. And I would like the the royal family, if there are members of the royal family or members of the institution who disagree, to communicate um, openly and honestly as well, because that's what the rest of us do, or, or, for the most part. You know, that's what we require. Poli- we we well, we we should require politicians to do in these situations is is be accountable and communicate honestly and openly. I think you know it, the the main thing that is highlighted to me is that um, we have a, a pretty awful media in this country. Um, and again, one that is in in huge need of of change and challenging, properly challenging, particularly the print media. 
Um, some of the stuff that's been printed, I'm sure we'll come on to Piers Morgan, just completely unhinged, um, essentially driving people to to either feel suicidal or or commit suicide. You know, um, we can't be okay with that as a as a country. You know, we we can't be. And these papers that are owned by probably three people, the most read papers in the country. Uh, probably the yeah the five or six papers that are most read owned by three people dictate what the majority of the country think and when they're all chiming off saying the same stuff or similar stuff that isn't good that isn't healthy so that would be my main takeaway to be honest um yeah. you know and Brett, i know that you've got an issue with the, the conversation being focused around people like piers morgan but i think it's important to, to at least talk about our dissatisfaction if, if we are dissatisfied with it our dissatisfaction with the media in this country as well sure i just wanted to bring up um you mentioned the that you think that the royal family should be more open about this. And I've heard mm. the argument made that if they do that, then they're no longer this, you know, family that people look up to and that they revere. They're just, they, they come off as normal human beings, which I would argue they should be, you know, well, they, they are, are. they yeah. are, yeah. but that's not the image that they're trying to put forward. So, no. Oh, maybe the queen can lose a person who knows, you know, <laughs> exactly. well, yeah, there is that. That's um, true. Yeah, very good point. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's a really weird situation because I know people who like the, the monarchy, who are, who actually feel very sympathetic towards Meghan and, um, and Harry, and obviously they're not, they're not racist. And so they feel, you know, if that's true, if that, if that is true, what she said, and I believe it is, but obviously a lot of people are saying, oh, she's just lying you know, um, <laughs> about, about what was said about Archie. That's just, that's vile. Um, yeah, it is, yeah. and and, and I think, but I've, but I also know people who don't like the royal family, but view Meghan and Harry as just being, you know, as being hypocrites or, you know, wanting the kind of media attention. And I think the reason that so many people kind of view her negatively is, is just exactly like, like Jack said, it's, it's just about the, when you have a, a media who are so strangely obsessed with the royal family when someone does something even remotely new when someone is seen as an outsider in so in any capacity then they will they can dictate what the country thinks you know i mean you're right it's, it's something like three people on like like two-thirds of the media in the country i mean that's absolutely that's ridiculous yeah. um, <laughs> yeah. i mean it's if you ask me, it's very undemocratic, and we yep. shouldn't have a, a media like that. But um, I think it's it's really it's really quite disturbing how easily people can turn a blind eye to what is quite clearly harassment and racism um, when because the the media kind of just tells them that someone is kind of disrespecting our country in some abstract way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. and it just brings out the absolute worst in people. These discussions, and essentially, what we're doing, like, and obviously, I appreciate the the question in terms of getting the discussion going. But with all of this stuff, it's like, it's like saying, it's like giving me a synopsis of my next door neighbor's life, and then going, "Tell me what you think. Take a side." Yeah, it's like, what? How can you expect people to do that? We we've really got no idea what's going on behind closed doors. You know, like you can you listen to what people say, and I've got no reason to to not believe. Megan, I don't really see why they would both come out and make that stuff up. And by all accounts, they haven't made it up. Um, you certainly wouldn't lie about feeling suicidal, I don't think. Um, so why anybody would disbelieve her 
um, let alone actively try to get people to, to not believe her and believe that she has ulterior motives with no evidence whatsoever is beyond me. Um, and this obsession with, with, you know, both the royal family, but also picking a side in people's lives and not just listening to what they have to say and going, you know, there's some bad bits. Um, I think that the, 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 oh, there's some bad bits, there's some good bits. And I think that the really important part is that this is this is crucial because the royal family are the figureheads of the country. They are supposed to set the example for how the rest of the country um, behaves, if you will. And when you have members of that family making comments like that or treating member of treating their family members in that way, that's when I think that there becomes a real a real issue. Which is why I think that the royal family is in in need of of reform. Mm-hmm. Um, is because it, it they they clearly aren't working properly as an institution. They're not certainly isn't suitable um, for for the twenty first century, in, in my view. Um, yeah, and, and to come on to Riley, what you were saying about the media and breaking the the media up and it, it being undemocratic, it almost certainly is. I think um, uh, if you were formulating a society, you know, from scratch, or at least a democratic society, a, a fair democratic society. You certainly wouldn't be comfortable with eighty um, percent of the media being owned by by three people, or mm-hmm. the print media being owned by three people. It's definitely not something that you would want, um, you know. So uh, something that you know, coming back to the Labour Party campaign and um, or the Labour Party is uh, uh, should be a core focus for them, in my view. Um, breaking up these media media monopolies and trying to have more transparent communication, and I think this highlights that. I think the pandemic has highlighted that, but this story in particular does a good job of it. Um, yeah. Brett, uh, let's come on to the, the the sort of need for the monarchy discussion because I've been looking forward to getting <laughs> into this all week. Do you think uh, abolish the monarchy been trended on Twitter? Do you think that this discussion has added more credence to that argument? So not necessarily, you know, I'd like to sort of get into your thoughts as to whether you think we should abolish the monarchy, but um, do you think that this case has added credence to that to that movement? Yeah, um, yeah, without a doubt, I think it has. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking at it objectively, I think that, that obviously, you know, something like this is going to spur on anyone who is anti-monarchy to to use it as as a reason to um, abolish it. But my main concern for the royal family in recently, I mean, obviously there have been stories about sort of the the, the Queen and Prince Charles recently in the Guardian. I think we covered it on this podcast, um, saying that they were. Uh, influencing um, certain legislation to stop them mm-hmm. from uh, displaying their 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 incomes or not incomes, but their their finances publicly, yeah, and that sort yeah. of thing. But from a moral standpoint, and I think that this interview raises a, 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 gives a lot of credence to the moral perspective. The royal family and its institution is incredibly out of touch incredibly out of touch incredibly old-fashioned they don't clearly do not care very much for mental health and i think that's probably one of the big reasons why we saw prince william and prince harry several years ago come out and talk about their mental health experiences and start charities based on them because they weren't necessarily getting the support within the institution itself and i mean we've heard obviously of cases in the past where certain other royal family members have not been supported by the institution um and it, megan coming out now is of no surprise to anyone i don't think when she says that she's not received or maybe it is a surprise to people who think that the royal family have tried to um you know support mental health services and that or that they've come out and 
recognised how important mental health is, but it's not reflected in how they they act clearly towards their own family members. Yeah. Um, that and what we've already mentioned, the fact that they aren't treated as human beings and doing that, I think, leads to them being particularly damaged people. Yeah. I don't think you can grow up yeah. in a in an atmosphere like that yeah. without coming out being, you know, pretty fucked up. And uh, they've got, obviously, we've... <laughs> Um, this isn't even getting onto the whole Prince Andrew conversation either. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like, all these different things are incredibly morally bankrupt. And yeah. do we really want a head of state or a family that represents us as a country that a lot of people seem to identify with, or maybe not identify with, but support, blindly follow? Do we really want them as a as the, or at least in the current form as a as a, a beacon of of uh british values yeah yeah a beacon of british values yeah i think it's a strong argument riley you got any thoughts on this <laughs> uh, it's interesting because i used to be one of those people who um, if you ask them about the royals, I'll be like, oh, well, you know, they bring so much money because of tourism. Just let them stay. So you know? did I. Yeah, um, yeah but um, over the last kind of couple of years, I've kind of, the more research you do into it, the more you realize that's actually kind of not true. Um, and even if it was, it kind of, that's not really the point, is it? You know, um, if someone said, you know, if we shoot 10% of the population, then everyone will be rich. You'd be like, well, you know, I mean, you know, we still shouldn't do that, even though it's good for the economy. You know, so it's it's kind of, it's it's one of those situations where it's, you know, it's a question of what does it say about us as a country? And I think, you know, uh, the world kind of looking at us now thinking, what are they doing? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. Why on earth, 21st century, why do you have... An aristocratic monarchy that's, you know, in a position because whilst the queen has limited powers and all of that, it's still an institution that has an immense influence. Yeah. And as uh, as you said earlier, it's got immense influence even over policy now because of lobbying. Um and I think I think it's it's kind of ridiculous that someone who represents us can't be chosen by us. And so I think we should probably have, you know, an elected head of state instead. I think the moral arguments are strong and fairly difficult to um to to disagree with, to be honest. I, I think there are sort of logistical and democratic and constitutional arguments to having a monarchy um the one that i often bring up to to brett when we have this debate off off podcasts and we often spend our time debating these issues off of off of podcasts um is a stephen fry kind of proposition and um that is the the top five happiest wealthiest most equal um countries in the world are all monarchical democracies um Scandinavian countries uh, have they have um, a monarchy and they are some of the most free, open, democratic countries in the world. So it isn't impossible to have uh, a monarchy and be uh, an open, democratic um, society. You know, it is possible. And uh, the sort of logistics in 
um, abolishing the monarchy and setting up a new system, whilst that might not be, like you say, a sort of good enough argument to not do it, are huge. And there would need to be a very, very strong case put forward as to how we would improve our system by doing that. Um, I think that there are things that can be done whilst the monarchy are in place that would make a bigger difference, you know, reforming the electoral system, having an elected second chamber, um, these being the, the two crucial ones. I think that there are sort of like media laws that need to be brought in, regulation that needs to be brought in. Um, I have major issues with how the, the monarchy functions. And I think that this is a really important debate in terms of how best we can formulate as a society and I think it's one that we need to have which is why it's so ridiculous that it gets shut down so quickly every time it, it comes up you know because people are so tribal um but I don't know if I'm fully there yet I, I definitely think there needs to be reform the, the the monarchy aren't subject to freedom of information um requests which is ridiculous you know that's absolutely crazy particularly considering the Prince Andrew stuff which we should um we should talk probably talk about more on this show to be honest yeah um and uh, the, the other thing that I would I would want to reform is that they aren't audited by the National Audit Office. Again, ridiculous. You know, they are, uh, I would argue, a public institution. Um, they uh, all of their wealth comes from from us, uh, essentially, whether that be the property that they own um, or, uh, you know, the sort of sovereign purse um, that the Treasury then gives gives back to them. Um, so that that needs to change they need to be audited there's major issues with tax avoidance in the royal family um you know but oftentimes we can't do these things or we can't tackle these issues because if you say anything bad about the queen you're automatically branded a traitor which is of, of course insane mm. um so removing those filters from these conversations is crucial and like we need to have them because the country obviously isn't working properly yeah for sure and it makes me wonder like i think a lot of people have been sort of saying with what's been uh, happening with the Meghan and Harry conversation, as soon as uh, the people are incredibly fond of the Queen, because obviously she's one yeah. of our longest reigning monarch, and uh, because of the crown, <laughs> what the TV series. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it dates back for like even my grandparents, yeah, especially does, yeah. my grandparents. You know, yeah. they they are incredibly, you know, they're not exactly course, monarchists, but they're very fond of her and they respect her. Yeah. What happens when she dies is the question, because I don't think as many yes. people respect Prince Charles. Um, well, this is the argument that the, the reform, <laughs> um, or not reform, but the Republic Party put forward, is that, that these reforms should happen when the Queen dies. Right. Um, that's the best place to put them. So they argue mm -hmm. that the monarchy should be abolished, um, and they say that the best time to do that is when the Queen dies. Um, and and they're going to start their campaign after the Queen dies, which I'm sure will will get them lots of pop, uh, you know positive publicity. Um, yeah. As soon as the Queen pops her clogs, they're out there campaigning to abolish the monarchy. That's probably you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what Piers Morgan's reaction to that is. Um, yeah. What what I, I wanted to add to to this though was that some of the most I've seen some of the most ridiculous takes in my life over the last two days. One of my favourites was uh, uh, regarding Charles not picking up Harry's calls and David Dimbleby actually on BBC said Charles might have been out the house <laughs> <laughs> seriously yeah. he was on and, and people went mm, interesting that's an interesting point I thought about that one it's like really that's yeah. the state that we're in like, assuming he was, that yeah, when he Harry was, brought that up he wasn't home 
Yeah, assuming that when Harry brought that up, he meant one phone call when Charles wasn't yeah. out of the house or wasn't in the house. And you can imagine Charles sprinting through Buckingham Palace <laughs> and trying to get to the <laughs> trying to get to the other end to answer the phone. Absolutely crazy, you know. Like obviously, there's been this like a uh, spoof um, panel that was set up with all these royal, so-called royal correspondents that come on and haven't even seen the interview yet they've got these long opinions on it and they're being asked what they thought of of some of oprah's questions that these sort of fake interview interviewers have made up um and they're answering them as if they were real you know just completely crazy um so i mean it it's highlighted so many issues so many kind of um areas that need focus some obviously more serious than others but um you know we are a laughing stock in so many ways (laughs) at the moment (laughs) Yeah, let's just keep adding to the list, shall we? Yeah, why not? Yeah. Um, going to move quickly on to the, the next uh, current events topic, but I know that we're running slightly low on time, so let's try and keep it quickly. Quickly? Try and keep it, try and we'll keep keep it quickly. It. Yeah. Jesus, try and keep it short. <laughs> uh, it's based on... So because it was International Women's Day yesterday, this isn't exactly a particularly uh, uh, positive story, but it needs to be talked about. I saw an article in The Guardian yesterday that said that half of women in the UK fear equality is going back to the 1970s, according to a survey. Um, it says that uh, people are afraid that, or women, sorry, are due to being more likely to have been furloughed over the last year, to have lost their jobs, to carrying the, the burden of d- domestic, uh, you know, homeschooling and domestic chores, that uh, it looks to them or they feel like they've been uh pushed back in terms of you know gender equality progress i was reading how uh, this survey says 70 percent of mothers with male partners are doing all or most of the homeschooling during the pandemic 73 percent of respondents saying they did all of or most of the laundry they did the food shopping and they did all or most of the cleaning and tidying up um Obviously, women across the country are very frustrated by this, um, and I think it's a matter for all of us to be frustrated with because it's it, it, what does it say as a society when an event like the one that's happened over the past year occurs and instantly any of the progress that's been made over the last few decades is reversed in that in those respects, and more importantly, that people don't necessarily acknowledge it from people saying that you know of course the you know things have been far better far better now than they were in the 70s you know there's no way that people are that we we're regressing or are oh, you're just being um sensitive yeah. it's quite quite sad i don't know if either of you have any thoughts or, or like on how what needs to be done to prevent this from happening or for, for, to pre- prevent this from worsening, but also from happening again in further crises like this, where for some reason we revert automatically to that. Cause it, it shows that we haven't broken, broken past that barrier. Is it that we're lacking certain legislation? Like there's not enough, like uh, uh, maybe like it's tied in with legislation, like um, paternity leave and that sort of thing, that it's not equal to maternity leave and, or that gender, the, the the pay gap perhaps is also something to 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 think about. But any thoughts? And it's a lot jump like rolled into <laughs> one there. But 
what do you want to what do you think needs to be done so from, from my point of view to prevent from this? my point of view this is this is societal right this is about gender norms and uh, yeah. the the, re- the reality of these things is that they only change over time and that they will never be fully equal um I, 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 and much like you know be careful why uh, how I, how i phrase how i phrase this because i obviously don't want to I think I think that you can't legislate for for this stuff as frustrating as it as it is, um, and as uh, unequal as, as it might be, as as it, as it probably is. Um, I think that that there are certain entrenched stereotypes, and it, these things are getting better, but they change over time, and that happens with education, um, and that happens with having more conversations about this stuff. Um, but it's a slow process and um, what we need to ensure that we're doing is carrying the conversation forward and um, continuing to break down these these barriers. And that isn't something that I even believe is the role of, of government to do. I think um, things like paternity leave, um, uh, is, is, it's important to tackle those changes. I think that there are legislative changes that can be made there and I think they're really important ones. Um, and oftentimes these things are more influential in things like the pay gap than you know straight up sexism is even though it's a factor um so it's important that those are are tackled properly but things like you know domestic chores like women doing more domestic chores and cooking and that kind of thing i think our generation will continue to to change those because um i think we view this stuff in a different way but i think it's a slow battle and it's frustrating but that's that's kind of where i stand on it i don't know how we can accelerate that process apart from having more conversations around it Sure. I mean, I guess what I would say to that, though, is that the the survey also brings up the fact that a lot of women have been furloughed or, or lost jobs over the over the pandemic as well, which I don't think is uh, I, that doesn't seem societal to me necessarily. Or I guess it is, but not in the same way as the fact that people that women might. Re- I'm assuming that when we're thinking about women reverting to domestic chores or to being more likely to do them, it's all the generations of women. But if the younger generations of women, which I know for a fact that younger women have been more affected than younger men when it comes to losing jobs and being furloughed over the last year, what, what, how is that? Um, why is that happening? I don't know. I can't answer that question. Sure. Um, you know, so it's interesting to to look into, and I think that we yeah. need to get to the bottom of these kind of, if you want to talk, call them systemic inequalities. Um, I can't answer that, and I also don't have the experiences. Those experiences, yeah, you know, it's pro- of of, of probably not best place to to give my answer, and there will always be an element of ignorance. Um, but uh, so I think it's important to center to with center women's experiences in these conversations, and um, I think that's kind of with our International Women's Day content yesterday. It's what we tried to do and push these conversations forward throughout the year, and not just have not just have them in on a day or in a month. Riley, I don't know if you've got anything that you'd, you'd like to add to that. Um, well, I, to be honest, I do, I do think there's legislation, um, that can be, that can be implemented. Um, to be honest, I think, you know, the state can solve any problem, but not in the way that, you know, a lot of, a lot of people might think. I think you either directly solve it or you make it a lot easier for people to choose the right option themselves. Um, and this is one of those ones, you know, you can't literally say to people, you know, you know, do the dishes, you know. your wife do you know it's not like it's not something like that you know you have to change the culture but i think an important thing is this kind of anti-walk i mean i hate that word but you know this kind of shift i think that's occurred online 
um, where I think even like our generation is kind of being um, slightly more, I don't know, like we're, it's book like the kind of uh, egalitarian viewpoints of people and feminism and things. I mean, I'm sure you'll have seen all the many feminists gets wrecked by logic and facts and stuff. Yeah. Compilations on YouTube. Some I mean, of my favorite videos. Yeah. yeah it's I'm, every night before bed, watch at least five. <laughs> <laughs> sweet, sweet voice. Um, but those kind of things do have a big impact. And so I think, you know, and you know, it kind of reinforces this idea that actually women's equality are oh, just a load of crap. You know, it doesn't like either ignoring the issue altogether or actively thinking, well, they kind of should be in that position. And I think that's a growing problem in the way you kind of legislate against that is by kind of cracking down on hate speech online and cracking down on um, data mining. And because those things get used by algorithms to, pinpoint people's exact political pressure points and kind of turn them against some very common sense egalitarian views um but yeah it's it's a very it's very sad um and i I, Uh, mean the irony is not lost that you know we're three guys talking about this but you know right exactly precisely precisely um, but you know i can tell you that it certainly changed in my my house over over the years and we do the way that, that it works in my house especially when it comes to like meals and washing up and stuff is that like we each take a a day to cook so you know like last night was my night and then the person to cook the night before washes up so i'll wash up tonight and it's having that rotation and i think that those small changes like you know taking this minute example drilling in that stuff from an early age saying that this stuff has to be done and it's not the job of mum or whoever to to do that um is important um, and I think where, like you say, where legislation comes in it is things like um, paternity leave, closing these gaps, uh, in- increase expanding choices for, for people. Um, and I think that there needs to be, you know, this. I think we, we really need to tackle how we perceive gender roles. I think that that's incredibly important, like the stigma around a man not working, being a stay at home dad, for example, there is a stigma that yeah. revolves around that. And I think that, you know, that needs sure. to be challenged. And I think that men have a large part to play in those, um, in tackling those gender norms, because we don't do a good enough job of either bringing our mates up when they bring them up or challenging, challenging them in the workplace. Um, there's a story, I know I hate to bring him up again, but there was this um, on, on Good Morning Britain this morning, fucking Piers Morgan, raise, like getting a co-worker to stand up to talk about how short her skirt was on live TV. He he was like, "Oh, I was. Uh, did you not see this, Riley?" He said, "He said I was. I was. I got distracted this morning um, because uh, I can't remember her name, which is really bad of me. But it said her name was. She was sat at the desk. It was wearing such a short skirt. Stand up, let everybody see. She was wearing a mini skirt. I, I wasn't complaining though. That's what he was saying live on live on TV this morning on one of the most watched breakfast news programs. You know, yeah. The the when we let that kind of of sexist." nonsense go unchallenged these things all become more of an issue um and it's it's our role which is why you know there is obviously an irony that we're also sat here talking about this but it is our responsibility as well to tackle this stuff um so yeah yeah i mean we've just got to keep hammering hammering away i think and uh listen to the people's experiences and 
it would be worse if we hadn't brought it up at all i, I think for sure it's, yeah because it's an easy story to ignore i think it, it, is. It, it like riley like you say it is easy to go oh this is just more woke nonsense and ignore it and really there is something kind of important that, that is underpinned by it um like there is with all these sort of societal issues and it, it, engaging with it even though it can be challenging at times i think because you have to sort of be a bit introspective is is the first step to to solve some of these issues yeah for sure uh let me move on to quick five questions uh cool. the first one is quick and simple uh should the monarchy be abolished yes no but that's not a really firm no that's <laughs> like a, i could probably be swayed no <laughs> turn it into a weatherspoons <laughs> <laughs> see i would i think i was more on the side of yes but then i think you partly helped in convince me that if it was legislated better if the maybe if the monarchy had no was purely there for show you know and not necessarily <laughs> had anything to do with legislation or or laws yeah. um like in some other countries i know like monaco for example they're they're uh, there's yeah, a principality yeah. but their um head of state is purely there for show um i think they're it, also a, a useful diplomatic tool as well sure. which we didn't mention earlier then again I'd still have to be convinced that the moral argument would be uh, fixed and sure. that they would um, tackle the those issues, but uh, and treat sure. them more as human beings, and also that they wouldn't be, you know, just living off of millions of pounds and have, you know, I don't want all of our taxpayer money to go towards them, <laughs> them <laughs> if they're not really doing much. Um, my second question would be: Will print media still exist in fifty years? And by print media, I mean newspapers, tabloids physical yeah the physical like, thing yeah 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 i'm gonna say yes no mm. i think i would say yes as well i i had i did media studies as a course and i think we had lots of conversations about it declining and um i think i would have thought then that maybe no that it would um still be around but yeah i don't know I feel like I think I, I think there's still a market for it, and that maybe fifty years is a long time. Um, it evolves, right? It doesn't. Maybe yeah, we'll all be wearing contact lenses then. That like, maybe maybe I can instantly bring up the Mail Online. Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my third question is: Should school days be extended? This is uh, inspired by Gavin Williamson's suggestion. No. Should they be extended? Yeah, I mean, I would say no as well, because I think there's only... There's, <laughs> I hated school as a kid anyway, but I think there's only a certain amount of time in the day that you can stay properly, you know, focused on, a, on yeah, something, so... Exactly. Well, But it's also like, let's not fix the really out-of-date curriculum, and let's not tackle all the issues that are um, encompassed under school. Let's What we should do is just make people be there for longer. That's not going to fix any issues. You know, it's just going to exacerbate yeah, all the issues that are already there. The evidence usually shows that working fewer hours generally yeah. improves your productivity, your yeah. your ability to learn. So it's kind of the arguments for the the opposite, really. Mm. Yeah. Uh, my fourth question is: one pillow or two? Four. Four. <laughs> I tell you, my sleep right? <laughs> I've got two pillows that I've got my head on. Then I have a pillow, so I'm like this, right? So my head's on two pillows, yeah? And then I've got a pillow next to me, and then I like... To cuddle. I'll pop a proper pillow here. That's how I sleep. So I utilise all four pillows. 
that's, selfish, that's maybe, selfish. but it's really comfortable. What about you, Riley? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, um, this is the Seven. one I'm having trouble with. Isn't that strange? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say two. Yeah. Two. Yeah. Who sleeps on one pillow? What sort of like weak necked person <laughs> only needs one pillow? Uh, well, it depends I would how wake fluffy up the pillow I'm... is, though, right? No. No. A, what a giant pillow! <laughs> I've <laughs> seen them. Yeah, they exist. Like they're quite. How many do you, you sleep know, on, Brett? Two as well. But mine are really thin, so <laughs> <laughs> so I need to. But um, isn't there the hard, an the hard hitting issue? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, these are the, the the questions that normally cause the most debate. <laughs> yeah. Um, my final question is: What's your favourite herb? <laughs> if I say like herb de Provence, is that cheating? Kind of. It's a mixture of herbs, isn't it? Herb de yeah, right. Basil then. Basil, all right. Basil? I'd say rosemary. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> is chives a herb? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Herb. Yeah. Nice. yeah. Did you just pluck out a random herb, Riley? <laughs> <laughs> just looking around the room for any herbs. <laughs> <laughs> to be uh, to be honest, my question was inspired by the fact that my girlfriend Kate has bought a bunch of herbs to like plant in pots, and it's. They're behind my computer as we speak. So, so you are now coming up with quick fire questions on the fly. Oh, we yeah. finally got to that point. What do you mean now? <laughs> this has been the case for ages. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for, for joining us today, Riley. It's been uh, a really good conversation. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to speak to you, mate. Can um, I ask... Do you want to plug your socials? We'll put them in the description, but if you want to plug anything, then now's your time. Um, I mean, yeah, my, my Twitter is at Riley Torbombito. Don't, don't, you know. Don't make fun of me. I made it when I was like well, <laughs> and I just I I can't. I don't have the heart to change it. Um, yeah. yeah, that's that's me. We'll put that in the description. Um, is yep. there in honor of International Women's Day because it was yesterday, and we're doing a bunch of content, and it's Women's History Month. Are there any women in your life that inspire, you, or any women in popular, the public life that inspire? You, would you say? I answered a couple of these. Um, Ro, Riley, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, What's sorry. Yeah, you, I was just going to say my um, <laughs> my my sisters. Um, they're identical twins, and they have dwarfism. They have achondroplasia, and they never cease to amaze me. Honestly, um, at the kind of the level of uh, bravery, because you know there's 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 mockery and there's, there's daring, and and they they ought to just take it in their stride. Um, they actually had a, had a TV show even. <laughs> Wow. Um, wow. On CBBC, yeah, and they just wanted to, you know, raise awareness and and they they really inspire me. Um, and I'd say in public life, um, I'd probably say uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I think is quite an inspiring figure for me. Nice, it's really a really good answer. Tearjerker yeah. almost. So. <laughs> um. Great. Well, thank you so much, Riley. And thank you, Jack, as well. Yeah, thank you, mate. No, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. We'll see you all next week. Yeah, like and subscribe, Brett. Shit. Every time. Every time I forget. (laughs) Like and subscribe. (laughs) And check out our other videos as well while you're at it. We'll see you next week. Okay, let's cut there. Cut there. Perfect. (laughs) Jesus.
the don't endings know, yeah. are so Every convoluted. Every time we record this bloody <laughs> podcast, Brett forgets to tell people to like and subscribe. I didn't last week. It's just you being here again. I, <laughs> well, I wasn't here. Yeah. <laughs>